then all of a sudden, about halfway through the monologue, something or someone overtakes me, bro. And I leap off the stage. I take a knee in front of Dr. Riley and I finish the monologue. It ends and she looks at me slack-jawed. Hi, welcome to Storia, where storytellers disrupt. I'm Fabiano Altamora. And I'm David Naronia. We have got the exciting opportunity today to interview Mr. David Naronia, my brother from another mother. Thank so you, will man. you start off, bro? Like, yeah. tell us, where were you brought up? Man, I was I was brought in, I like I like to joke that I was brought up in Havana, the sequel, which is Hialeah, Florida. Only Cubans would know this town. Um, it was just working class, simple, good, honest people that left um, basically fleeing Castro in Cuba, wow. you know, from Cuba in 5960. My, my, my grandfather actually had to escape in the trunk of a car through the sewers, over the wall of the Panamanian embassy to get out of the country because he wouldn't turn over a couple of his friends who were accused of bombing uh, Castro's forces. So that's that's the town where I grew up, man. Wow. What was that like growing up there? Dude, we were simple, simple people. I mean, for me, it was, it was BMXs. It was uh, streets that would flood when it rained too much because we're at sea level in, in Hialeah. Um, it was it was a time when kids could go, go out and you'd hear your grandmother, you know, call out and you'd come home, you know, when the sun was setting. Um, yeah, just good, honest, simple working class people. Yeah, it's very family oriented. I think mm -hmm. our cultures, you very know, similar. I'm Italian, yep. Cuban. you're Cuban. Yep. And I think that that family environment and the way you were brought up, you know, was... When you reminisce back to the 80s, and I know you're considerably older than I am, but um, <laughs> you were 60s, right? 50s? 72. No, 72. I'm turning 50 this year, man. I know you are, bro. Yeah. I'm excited to go to uh, wherever we choose to go. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, um, I love the element that we were brought up in these mm -hmm. fiery families. Now, mm -hmm. you know, being brought up in that environment, how the heck do you go from that to deciding you want to be an actor? Yeah, um, it's funny. Like I, I often joke, I have like this stock joke about that the, the closest thing there was to culture in my home was Cuban coffee, mangoes and, you know, and salsa music um, because they were simple people. I mean, like my grandmother had gone to college, but very few people in, in my family had actually gone to college or university. So like there were no I wasn't taking dance classes. There was no music theater to be to, to be heard of. Um, Movies were, you know, whatever was on TV. I mean, this is pre-VHS. It, 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 it's like, I think one of the first films I saw was Flashdance inappropriately. I had teenage parents, so there was no, <laughs> there were no guardrails whatsoever. Um, so I, I had no concept of culture as we know it as actors. For me, that turn came much, much later in high school. How did it come about? I mean, fun, let's just quickly go back and go. Yeah. You were brought up by teenage parents. Yeah, my, so my dad was so young legally he couldn't go up to the hospital room where I was being born because he was 15 years old my mom was 17 um yeah this was teenage romance this is kids raising kids I mean my dad is so young that we joke about like going to Denny's together for like the retiree you know double <laughs> AARP blue plate special together I mean my dad's just in his mid mid 60s, 60s. I'm about to be 50 yeah yeah, yeah. my dad and I were so close most people thought he was just my my older brother. 
So, but my mom, this is something I got to brag on for a second, like specifically with things that are happening in culture right now. When my mom, when, when we found out that my mom was pregnant, not me, but her family found out, the first question was on what mattress, let's get rid of that. Secondly, my grandfather said, you quit high school now because you've humiliated me enough. Oh no. Uh huh. And, but my mom had such deep conviction, even at 17 years old, she, she actually told my dad, they weren't married at the time. She said to my dad, um, you can marry me or not marry me, but I'm having this, this boy. She hid the pregnancy for six or seven months. Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, it was like the early 70s. So she had like, you know, baggy clothes on. Right, you know, and she's and, tiny on my And she's, anyway. she's, she's so tiny, petite gosh. and tiny. And so anyways, it, it was a pretty dramatic story. And my, my parents, God bless them, man. They did they did their best. They stuck together for about 15 years. And I'm, yeah. I was super blessed to have, even though they were young, um, it took a village. My grandparents really were proxy parents for me. Like I wouldn't be who I am without my praying Catholic, then turned yeah. Lutheran praying grandmother. Yeah, it's the prayers of our parents. You know, when you think of our kids, all we want our kids to do is have an encounter with Jesus. And I just hope one day they'll be go, it was because of my praying parents oh, yeah. that I came to know Jesus. So like, this is a very kind of unconventional way you were brought up, right? But you know what I'm saying, No, I was right? cultural Catholic. Um, I remember, I remember going to, I remember going to mass with my grandmother. This is, this is pre-Vatican II or whatever, before the Pope said, hey, you can yeah, talk yeah, English. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this was a full Latin mass and my Cuban grandmother would take me. And I would get so bored that sometimes I'd like use finger guns and I'd be <laughs> pointing and shooting like the, the candelabras and the candles and stuff. And my grandmother would say, Nino, don't do that. You can't, don't do that. You can't shoot in church. So I'd be bored out of my mind there. But I know for a fact that I came to believe because of my grandmother, Judith. It's those deposits. 100%. It's never wasted. God wastes never. nothing, does nothing. it? It's those deposits. So like from there, then obviously you weren't bought up. Nope. In an artistic per se Not background. At Not at all. So how did you go from like being brought up with teenage parents, mm -hmm. Catholic environment to then going, I want to spend the rest of my life being an actor? A lot of freedom, a lot of imagination. My, my dad worked at a computer factory, so he would bring home like early, early LED lights and um, I'd make spaceships. Out of, so I always had like a very vivid, yeah. vivid imagination. And I, I, I've always been intrigued by, frankly, like science in many ways. Like I... I, I I love this idea that you can make anything and, and, and go anywhere. I didn't realize that was the precursor to my storytelling right. imagination. I think the big turn for me was um, there's this guy named Danny Fickle who in junior high said, hey, there's this program, this international baccalaureate program at this um, very posh high school. Because, I mean, I was in working class uh, neighborhoods, so I was, I was destined to go to another high school. Had it not been that we moved from one neighborhood to another, had I not met this, this really genius young guy who ended up serving in the military, he's still friends with me, uh, Danny Fickle, he said, hey, there's this program. So I remember that I, I wrote the application but I was, I mean, man, I, I was gritty, but I was a little bit ignorant. So I remember on my application, I actually said, um, uh, I need, I need to be accepted because it's a doggy dog, dog, e dog, not dog, eat dog, <laughs> dog world. Thank God they needed some Cubans and some Hispanics to round out the quota. And right. I got accepted to this really posh high school in this rich neighborhood where I had the privilege of having uh, instructors, high school English teachers that had PhDs that wow. wrote for the SATs. Um, Dr. Riley and Peggy Hall, these two women changed the course of my life. So you did the IB? I did the IB, man. Wow. That's, Listen, that's I didn't very... I didn't complete it. Oh, you didn't? I, I, well, I mean, like, 
the International Baccalaureate program was uh, made for diplomats' kids so mm-hmm. that they would have equal education wherever they were in the country. So I was one of the first years. I didn't, I mean, I ended up getting all the AP classes and stuff, but I kind of backed off the IB thing because it, it was a little bit yeah. above my pay grade, to be totally. I mean, I, yeah. I was in school with kids that went on to MIT. Wow. Like, really brilliant. So, like, you know, what is it? High tides raise all, all boats, boats or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I was one of the other boats, and these guys um, raised me up. But in this, there were these women these female teachers who were absolutely brilliant. And I'll never forget that they were doing Sound of Music and they needed a Kurt Von Trapp, whose one of two lines is, I'm 11 almost. <laughs> and I looked 11 when I was when I was in high school. And um, I did Sound of Music. And I thought at that point, man, I was, I was headed to medical school. Right. You know, I was headed to medical school. I was a good Cuban kid. I was like, I got to do something better yeah. than my parents, right? I mean, that was that's the hope of any immigrant culture. And uh, I was in Sound of Music, and it started the turn. It started the change of my life. Isn't it funny, though, that you, you know, your parents only know what they know. Oh, yeah. But if you have inspirational teachers, they can literally change the course of your entire life. 100%. You know what I mean? You, you're inspired by them. A lot of the time, you know what I encounter a lot is like, I love Shakespeare. So Shakespeare mm. is one of my uh, jams. I just think he's a yeah. genius. Mm-hmm. He is a genius. I mean, oh. you know, he's probably the most famous playwright. Like lightning it's, hitting lightning absolutely. in a bottle. Yeah. But why then do most people hate? When I start teaching Shakespeare at BCA, people go in with a little bit of trepidation. People go in saying, mm. I, I don't enjoy Shakespeare. It's boring. I'm like, it's because you weren't taught it right. Correct. You know what I mean? So, you know, you go in and you go, oh, we read Shakespeare. Shakespeare is not meant to be read. It's meant to be played. 100%. The word of God is meant to be heard, right? Mm-hmm. So for you then, these ladies, how did they inspire you? Well, there was one little precursor and it goes back to Danny. And, and I'm so glad you mentioned this because it's actually related to, sh- to, to Shakespeare. Yeah. So I remember I was a scrawny middle schooler. I'm in ninth grade and I'm working out with Danny, um, uh, Danny Fickle, this buddy of mine. And he's got a boom box. And randomly, this is just quintessential Danny. Like it makes no sense. We were probably listening to like Beastie Boys and then he decides nice. we should listen to Hamlet while we do weights. So he brings out on cassette That's awesome, dude. Richard Burton's performance. Wow. His voice. Like butter on gravy yeah. steak. Like I, I don't know how to describe if you've never heard Richard and, I'm, and there's so many other brilliant yeah, performances yeah. as well but um on cassette, and then he had his grandfather or great-grandfather's hardcover copy, this little edition of Hamlet that he brought out that was 110 years old. So I remember, I'm like, whatever, 13, 14, 15 years old, and he puts on this boombox, Richard Burton, and he starts with this mellifluous, buttery voice, the to-be-or-not-to-be speech. And dude, it stopped me cold. I'll never forget the feeling. I'll never forget the feeling of first hearing Richard Burton's voice. And I, I, and I remember this for the rest of my life. I thought, I have no idea what he's saying, but I feel as a, as a 14-year-old exactly the way that Hamlet does. He's lost. He's searching. He doesn't know whether he wants to exist or not, what it means to exist. And dude, there was a truth and a resonance in the lines. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't understand the English words. Yeah. I knew what he felt. And that's, I think, the power of Shakespeare. I do, because I think it's it's the way he wrote it can only be from heaven. It's in the music. Because it's in the iambic that's mm-hmm. the heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So you're resonating on a human level with that heartbeat. 
da, 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 there was da, revelation da, you know I mean? in Shakespeare Absolutely. that goes beyond the words. So that that moment there piqued this interest. Then I had another little moment. It was it's funny the way that the Lord works you. Where I had this girlfriend at the time. Her name is Erica Pelzer. We're still friends to this day. My wife's <laughs> met her. She's a sweetheart. She you know she was like my first girlfriend, and she was a dancer. She was a ballet dancer. You can see the theme in my life. Yep. <laughs> I was branded like a duckling. Um, I'm married to a dancer, and so. <laughs> But I remember she was doing the Nutcracker and afterwards she invited us on stage, you know, to like say hi to her or whatever, you know, after the audience was gone. And this was another seminal moment for me. I'd never been on a stage before and the, the house lights were still down, right? The lights are on stage. And I remember walking out and dude, I remember what I said. I said, I like the feeling of this. Richard Burton, that moment, then I get to high school, I do Sound of Music, but the moment that changed it was when I auditioned for the Fantastics. For the Fantastics, and this was, this was a, a high school. High school, yeah, it was a high school musical. Yep. Um, it's this simple little story about two dads, two kids, and this kind of musical muse. And it's basically two dads that are trying to, without the kids knowing, prearrange this relationship and this mm-hmm. marriage. It's, a, it's one of the longest running musicals in the history of American music theater. I think it ran off Broadway for like 60 years. That's crazy. I played the boy in it. <clears throat> So Dr. Riley, my high school English teacher, is also like the director of this thing. She says, David, I think you... Now, keep in mind, I had had one line, 11 almost, as Kurt Von Trapp in Sound of Music. <laughs> this is the extent of my theatrical training. And she says, I think you should audition for the lead of The Fantastics, The Boy. My uh, show choir teacher, yes, I did show choir, um, she said to me, you've, you've got a voice, you're, you're a tenor. And so... Doc had heard this right. and she said, you need to audition. So I memorized the monologue the way I would memorize like facts for a biology test, <laughs> yeah, yeah, except yeah. I know intuitively just from watching stuff that it should sound like it's coming from the inside yeah. of you, right? So you're like, okay, so I practice in the mirror. I'm my 16 years old, by the way, one year older than my dad was when he became a father. And I go to the audition. Wow. Yeah. Crazy, right? You think yeah, about that. Crazy. Babies crazy. raising babies. And I remember I stood on this little stage. Dr. Riley was in the, in, the, in the house. My peers were around. And I was inexperienced, man. But just with gumption, I just got up there. And I remember, I only remember the first couple of lines. Uh, it, it starts with, there's this girl. There's this girl. And this boy starts to describe this, this girl that lives next door to him. And then all of a sudden, about halfway through the monologue, something or someone overtakes me, bro. And I leap off the stage. I take a knee in front of Dr. Riley and I finish the monologue. It ends. And she looks at me slack-jawed like, what the heck happened? I kind of come out of it. I, didn't, I, I never had this feeling of having a moment overtake me like this. And I got the role. I got the role. What I didn't know was it, it wasn't a something that overtook me, but it was a someone. And the someone? Holy Spirit, man. See, so he had you from such a young age. He did. He you know did. what I mean? I have, I have no reason to be alive. I mean, uh, you know, according to everything else, I, I probably should have been aborted. My dad struggled with uh, alcohol and drugs. He probably totaled six to eight cars while I was a kid. One of them caught fire. Were you in them? Oh, yeah. I've been in so many accidents, like cats have nine lives. I, I think I have like 13. <laughs> All of this to say, I shouldn't be here today, man. You know, I love that. I love that when we talk about this thing called theater, and we'll get back to mm-hmm. what we were saying, it's, it's so beautiful that God gave us this craft mm-hmm. 
to be able to bless the world with, yeah. right? And so many times we've been told that it's wrong to kind of desire these things because we've been told predominantly probably by the church that not all churches, but performing is wrong, Yeah. right? When when it isn't. It's selfish. It's self-centered. Selfish. Exactly. It's narcissistic. Look at me. It can be. I'm not saying it can't be. No, no 100%. Yeah. But I think when we do it in the way that we're training our students, it's a very different perspective on it. Yeah, I think... This is why I think, and we'll talk about this in the, in the, the, you know, one of the future episodes, but this is why one of our core values at, at Bethel Conservatory of the Arts is serve. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like the Lord. It's not to be served. It's to serve. And that, if you ever watch a performer that shifts it from me mm-hmm. to them, it's, it's a whole other experience. It's not stars, it's servants, right? It's Amen. kind of where that... A- to serve the audience and the playwright and the, the director, screenwriter and the director and, and everybody. Yeah. So now you'd had this amazing experience mm-hmm. first, well, say second audition, whatever it was mm-hmm. for you. What was the point after that, that you went, okay, now I'm going to audition for Carnegie Mellon, which is one of the best drama schools on the entire planet. Yeah. Like what was your next step? Again, man, like, so God, he, it was it, in retrospect, right? Hindsight is, is 2020. So I auditioned for this musical and I'm, you know, it, I'm well received. People are like, wow, you, you've got something. So Dr. Riley, again, who, by the way, I'm still in touch with. So she's cool. in her 80s. Um, she, she's, yeah, she's, she's really been a, an amazing mother to me. She says to me, listen, <laughs> so imagine you're in a high school in Miami and it just so happens that your AP English lit teacher who directs you in Fantastic says, one of my former students is the associate head of drama of Carnegie Mellon. Now, I've never heard of Carnegie Mellon in my entire life. His name is Don Marinelli, and um, I think he's coming to town, and I want you to meet him. So I meet Don, and, um, you know, Don says to me, hey, Doc says you've got something. I want you to audition for Carnegie Mellon. Again, man, I like, I know nothing. Like, I come from a working <laughs> class. I, you know, I know University of Miami. At this point now, I'm in my uh, senior year of high school. So, I mean, I'm applying to Brown, University of Miami, um, Northwestern, a bunch of other ones. And, you know, I got into UM Medical School. I got into Brown. I got into all these Oh, other so you things. got into Ivy League then. I got into, yeah, yeah I got yeah, into yeah, some yeah, really totally, good schools. Yeah, yeah. And I was headed, you know, um, but... So here's the turn. Don says, I think you got something, so audition. So Doc, she she's like, she she understands the rigor of, uh, she has respect for yeah. theater and the craft. So she says to me, I'm going to help you find monologues. So she helps me find, I mean, this woman walked, she held my hand, man, because I knew nothing. And so she, 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 she finds the dramatic monologue. And then check this out. Talk about clocking your 10,000 hours. She made me go into multiple classrooms during English in front of high schoolers and perform my audition for Carnegie Mellon over and over and over again. She's like, listen, if you can do it in front of 30, 16 year olds, genius, you're going to go in front of uh, these. So, but then it gets even better. Check this out. Now, Carnegie auditions in like four or five major cities, Pittsburgh, New York, L.A., um, in New Orleans. Now, New Orleans has a hurricane. They cancel New Orleans. They bring it to Miami, but because of the cancellation. Now, if I were to audition, check this out. Check out the numbers in God's orchestration. If I had audition in Pittsburgh, New York, or LA, on average at these auditions would be five, six, eight hundred kids yeah. coming for 40 slots. They cancel New Orleans. 
I audition in Coral Gables, Miami, literally in my backyard. So, I mean, because I've got no money to fly. So he brings the audition to me. I end up auditioning with only seven kids. Seven instead of a thousand. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, bro. Yeah, God had his hands on me. But had I, had I auditioned in a city with five, six, I, I wouldn't have been able to compete. God was like, I mean, yeah, who knows, Yeah, right? God had it from the foundation of the earth, bro. I mean, yes, but I understand what you you're understand saying. You understand what I'm saying? I like, do, I do. A lot I do. of competition, man. <clears throat> so he, he, he was like, I'm going to make this as easy as possible. It's easier to stand out <laughs> right. in front of six yeah. or seven kids than, and so I get in, man. And at 17, I go to Carnegie. And like, okay, so at this point, you've not yet, you've not yet accepted Jesus oh, into gosh, your no. heart. Cultural um, Catholic at best. Cultural Catholic. Mm -hmm. So you, you obviously, I'm sure you believed in the Lord, I right? I knew about Jesus. Yeah, I didn't know but him. But you didn't know no, him. No. So what was your experience like at conservatory? At conservatory? Oh. Because, you know, obviously yeah. we both went there. Our experience is very different compared yeah. to what we do now. Yeah. So how did you navigate your four years at Carnegie? Yeah, messily. <laughs> I, I was, I was. How did you land that puppy? Yeah, I, I don't know that I ever landed. I, I think I actually crashed into a couple of buildings while I was there. I mean, listen, I got there when I was seventeen. I was so poor. It was the first time I got on a plane. Was to go to college. I was so poor. I didn't have a pillow. Um, so like, I slept without a pillow for like you know uh, months and months and months. I had some of the best teachers. Um, on the planet, I mean, phenomenal people. Uh, Liz Liz Orion was was the head of drama at the time. She was a Brit. I think she studied at one of the major major schools uh, there. And um, Don uh, was my voice and speech teacher to this day. We're still really really good friends. He's in his seventies now. I consider him a life mentor and a creative father to me as well. So I I want to be really clear. Carnegie is one of the best schools on the planet. The 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 training, the quality of training that I got there. Yeah was unbelievable and i think i had a lot of good intended uh people but when a young kid who's 17 years old is away from home for the first time yeah let's just say man it was it was pretty messy with I me mean, with girls and in the social scene and 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 stuff it's like it never got as bad as drugs i was a pretty clean kid during that time yeah but like it was it was pretty it was pretty messy and i think maybe the hardest thing for me aside from being incredibly lonely, was I just had no idea who I was. I yeah. had no sense of identity. So I was only as good as the last exercise I had totally. done in class. And I also didn't know how to take care of myself. So when I was trying to go places emotionally and stuff, I could be pretty self abusive in order mm -hmm. to like get to places that I thought were real and authentic, very methody, very, you Well, know, what do you know at 17? That's why, you know, back anything. in the UK, we advise a lot of people not to start drama school till you're 21. I love that. Because the thing is, it's like, you know, you are having a deal with- Unless you have a school like BCA. Oh, no, no, 100%. BCA is a different, is a very different Well, because thing, I though. think if you're going to come at, at 17, bro, you need to have people that care about you like mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. Which right? is how we structure it, right? Yeah. You know, we have pastors, we have, you know, we have mothers and fathers oh. all around, not to not to cocoon or mollycoddle, but to actually say help this guiding. is what required. It's Absolutely. help, guide, mentor, coach, and teach. Um, so, you know, I think that's it's really... At 17 is such a young and vulnerable age to, yeah. you know, good word vulnerable. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, absolutely. it's because that whole method thing, it's one of the things that is very divisive in technique mm -hmm. throughout, you know, modern dramatic thought really is like oh. using your past experiences to actually, <laughs> you tell, know. <laughs> I'll tell you a not so funny story. <clears throat> I had to do a sense memory exercise where I had to look at pictures 
or I chose to, I had a cigar box. I still remember this. I had a cigar box and it was full with pictures and it was just, um, understanding it's, it's this exercise that you do to kind of tap into your heart so that you can access your emotional, yeah. your emotions and your emotional instrument or whatever. And so <laughs> the problem was, is I had just gotten back and my girlfriend from high school, who I was still trying to connect with during the first year of college had just broken up with me. I choose to do an exercise completely unprocessed. Like literally it's Monday morning and she broke up with me on Saturday or Sunday car ride back home with guys. So no time to process emotion whatsoever. I step in and I do this exercise. I open the box. I get to about the third picture and I start to convulsively ugly cry in front of all of my peers and can't stop. So she, my teacher who didn't know what to do with me, Barbara McKenzie Wood, who's a sweetheart. She's a sweetheart. She says, David, why don't, why don't you step outside? So I step outside by the bathroom, continue to cry for about another hour. And then she says, uh, she, she ends class. I miss the rest of class. She comes outside. She's like, ne- next time you, you might just want to be careful, sweetie. What, what you, but you don't know. Especially not at that age. And I think, you know, there are parts of that that I had value in. And this is not going into kind of like an acting technique class. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I think that we do have to be careful in our technique. We do. And I think we, we do have to, um, listen, involving the Lord in our technique, as you know, from screenwriting and acting and, and, you know, myself with technique and directing and stuff. It's like, it changes everything. If you do not involve the Lord, mm-hmm. it goes a very, 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 very different way. I'm reminded of what Bill says. He says, um, you know, human reason outside of the presence of God is demonic by nature. Mm. It's a pretty strong statement, yeah, yeah. but shy of, of the, the demonic, it's that it opens you um, it opens you to a type of pain and a type of vulnerability that I think is unsafe yeah, without yeah. him, you know? Yeah. So talk me three, you, you finish, you finish school. And then what happens after that? I'm you 21, get... man. I get wrapped. I, you know, I think you and I shared and have commiserated, you know, my first agent, um, who I believe is passed on. He was, you know, it, we, we went through some rough moments together. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't always the, the, the kindest of men, but he, but he saw me and he was one of the few, it was William Morris and it was this small agency, William Morris, a big agency. Yep passed me up so some of my classmates got 13 15 meetings i got two well at least you got wme there it was good man bro yeah i mean it was good it was good i remember going (laughs) in a really bad suit you would have totally made fun of me to the wme meeting completely overdressed i mean it was it was just shy i mean just to say it was ill-fitting you wouldn't have been dang (laughs) it was cheap ill-fitting didn't get that one. I end up, but here's the deal. I end up actually getting in a play written by Terrence McNally that uh, starred Nathan Lane, uh, John Glover, uh, Benjamin Hickey, and a bunch of other really well-known guys. Nathan Lane, you would know him as the meerkat from, you mm-hmm. know, from Lion King and a bunch of other things. So I made my Broadway debut. I'll, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I was an understudy in the show. So, I mean, I literally, I graduated 21 and about six months later, I land my first Broadway show, Wow! but as an understudy and I was covering a young gentleman who was, had just been diagnosed with, um, epilepsy oh. and they were getting his medication. Um, uh, so now we had moved from off Broadway to Broadway in time for, um, you know, Valentine's day or whatnot. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a, a play about a group of friends that meet over these subsequent summer holidays and so on and so forth. And, um, there was some nudity in the play. Again, disclaimer, this was pre-Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting up in the balcony watching 
uh, the actors, two young actors that I cover in the show. Now, we had just moved to the new space. I had never yet actually uh, rehearsed on the new stage, just on the smaller off-Broadway stage. We just hadn't had time. And so we transfer the show. I'm up there. And all of a sudden, at the end of Act One, uh, the young actor who has epilepsy um, s- stops speaking. Now, he's in the middle of this diatribe, this argument across this long table with John Glover. And he stops talking in front of like a couple thousand people. And then he walks off stage. And we hear this strange sound, like this wailing from off stage. And one of the other understudies that was up in the loge with me, the balcony looking, he says, you're going on. So I run downstairs and the guy's having an epileptic fit oh there in the stairwell. Goodness. They literally went out. This is an old theater joke, uh, but but it was true. The, one of the actors goes out to the edge of the stage. The audience doesn't know what the heck is going on. There's hubbub and stuff. And they say, literally, is there a doctor in the house? Three doctors come up. They do all the wrong things. They hold him down. They do all the things you're not supposed to do with with an epileptic. Anyways, dude, they they ambulance him to to a hospital. Next thing I know, I'm I'm getting in costume and like hitting play on on a VCR, a DVD player. We literally just take it a few lines back. Nathan Lane looks at me. He says, "Where do you want to take it from?" I'm like deer in the headlights. He's like, "I'll feed you a line." We go out on stage. The audience applauds, and I begin my Broadway debut by ending Act One. Act two begins with me fully naked up on a raft, <laughs> making my Broadway debut, standing in front of a couple thousand people with this monologue. I get dressed on the stage, the whole thing, you know, the, the piece, we won't talk about it too much, but all of this to say that I end up making my Broadway debut at the end at the curtain call. Nathan Lane goes to the foot of the stage and he says, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for, for navigating this with us. The actor who, you know, I won't name uh, is, is safe and at the hospital. And I believe tonight is our fine understudy, David Neronia's Broadway debut, standing ovation. Come on. Standing ovation. It turns out, A, there's a Today Show producer in the house who ends up interviewing me for the Today Show. Wow. Today Show. Secondly, a New York Times reporter just happened to be there and ends up writing a story on me and the understudy wow. who was uh, covering Glenn Close um, in a musical that she was doing at the time. I mean- you know, it's like Sunset? the stuff of Sunset, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. That's right. So you spent how many years doing theater before you kind of transitioned into Two TV years, film? man. Two years. And then, you know, the sunshine, the car, the money, the fame of Los Angeles yeah, yeah, called yeah. me. Because you were in New York, right? I was in and New then, York, yeah. did a bunch of theater, whatever, Broadway yeah. off-Broadway stuff, man. And then I landed this audition. First of all, I get, I get measles <laughs> doing a show regionally. We went to a benefit lunch and there were kids that had, oh no, chicken pox, chicken pox. I break out and I look like a character from, <laughs> from Star Trek or something. My, my future <laughs> wife comes to pick me up. I had 200 blisters on my face. I thought my acting career was over. And then my agent, Ron Ross, whose name I just remembered, he says, I got an audition for a TV musical starring Angela Lansbury Mm. called Mrs. Santa Claus. I said, Ron, you don't understand. I look like a a, a sci-fi character. He says, I don't care what you look like. You put makeup on and you go to this audition. So I go and I land this movie musical. This was before like uh, Annie and uh, Cinderella with Whitney. This right. Mrs. Santa Claus kind of started this this trend of music theater on television and film. Right. Starring Angela Lansbury for Murder She Wrote and She just and, passed. She just passed, she just man, passed, at 96. Yeah, yeah Crazy, at 96 yeah. years old. So we do this movie musical, man, and I made more money in 7 weeks than I had made in 2 years. Crazy. In New York and I said 
I like this. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So I moved to LA. It's funny, our connection before we even knew was Angela Lansbury because I, went, I she trained at the same conservatory as I. Oh my gosh. I. Wow, wow, So wow. I went to the same conservatory. I, I don't know if I knew. I don't yeah. know if I knew that. No. Okay, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So she went to Art Settle, I went to Art Settle. Wow. So, so, so the same conservatory, which is cool. It's very cool, man. You know? She's a legend. Six degrees of separation. Come on, baby. <laughs> so, so you moved to LA, mm -hmm. and then you spend best part of the next 15, 16 yeah. years, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Working pretty much constantly in, in TV and film. Yeah, mainly television. Mainly television just became my bread and butter, man. So how do you find the difference between... <laughs> TV and theater, like your first experience, right? Because obviously at time, Carnegie's not going to have had much on camera, is it? It not None at all. Right. Like so, very, very little. So you trained in theater, you trained classically. Mm -hmm. How did you make that transition between? Quite easily by mistake. And I'll tell you why, because <laughs> one of my the consistent notes was, speak up <laughs> oh on stage speak up oh, okay. all the time all the time and then you know my buddies you know i'm a weird cat when it comes to music theater because like i like sondheim and i like the stuff that feels a little bit more authentic yeah, and yeah. gritty and honest if it gets a little bit too jazz you hands. mean like greece and starlight express i'm joking no, no don't even get me started on musicals that have like you know roller skates and cats oh i love that anyways <laughs> um, i'm not a fan of weber but yeah so I was always a fan of film. In fact, what I would do is I would, um, well, one of my big messes at Carnegie was when I turned down the lead in Three Penny Opera, which was a mistake on my part, to do one day in a film, but with John Cusack. John Cusack, and that Debbie was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because I was fascinated by the subtlety. And in fact, yeah. um, the on-camera class by um, famous British actor who's in like 300. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Yeah transformative for me yeah actually if i were to give you a short answer it was watching that on vhs or yeah. laser dvd that gave me my on-camera training we still use that now oh it's, it's because it's it perfect now. because yeah, he's yeah. a genius and yeah, he's yeah. done like you know how many hundreds of films um yeah bro for me it was like that was an easy an easy well getting the jobs not so easy yeah uh technically i i don't know somehow it just made it made sense for me yeah it just made sense for me. And so I look, I didn't get a, I didn't get a lot of gigs in the first couple of years. If anybody had told me, just buy some better clothes, get a tan, get a good haircut and you'll work in LA yeah. in addition to having some training might help. Um, but it took me a while just because New York is about gritty the way you can look all pasty and, you know, yeah. not be, you know, you can be disheveled because you're like a theater actor. LA, man, you had to go in looking tight. And I didn't really fully get that. Once I got that and I realized that going to the tanning bed was, you know, equal tantamount to continuing taking some acting classes, um, I started the book. I, you know, I booked a ton of commercials, Spanish, English. Um, I mean, I did a series of budget rent-a-car commercials that made me 100 grand one year. Wow. Yeah. Not, not, not bad. Um, not bad. And then guest spots. And then I landed my, my first series regular with Josh Broland and Audra McDonald. And I was 29 going on 30. And I thought it was all, you know, all going to be, you know, stars and, and kitty cats. After so that. in this journey of acting, like you're obviously doing the majority of uh, without Jesus. When was, what mm -hmm. caused you yeah. to realize that, you know, I've had a great element of success. You know, mm -hmm. you spent... 18 years up mm -hmm. to this point, earning a living from your craft, right? Which not many people- 100%, bro, 100%. Yeah. I, I was actually able to pay my bills exclusive and raise kids in a family. Which is great, which is not a lot of people can say yeah, that. Yeah. So at what point did you kind of feel that this life that you were living, there was something else to it, that you were missing something? 
I mean, you know this story, but I think it warrants because this is the midpoint. Like if you, you know, if you're a, st- a student of screenwriting, um, you know that the midpoint turn is the jujitsu flip 180, get the protagonist on his back. So what happened was I told my, I told my manager, Howard Green, who I've been with now for over 20 years. Um, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm burnt out on TV. I'd done a couple series regulars made monopoly money for a while there. Um, the money wasn't necessarily all there, but I just said, I, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I need to get back to the boards, meaning the stage. And I auditioned for a sweet little musical that at this point was just going to be, um, you know, regional in, in, um, in, uh, down in SoCal and, um, San Diego at the La Jolla Pla- yeah. Playhouse, a little musical by the name of Jersey Boys. And I remember like interesting connections with this. When my dad got off the plane from Cuba at like four or five, the first American pop song he remembers hearing is Sherry, which is a song by Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. And so I, I absolutely loved 50s doo-wop and Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons was like, they were like heroes to me, man. Working class kids from Jersey, Italian. Um, and so I remember actually going to the audition in LA for uh for jersey boys at the debbie reynolds studio which is this dinky little studio that's like you know literally it was in north hollywood you know like five minutes from my apartment right or from my house and i and i go to the bathroom and who comes out but frankie valley next thing i know 10 minutes later i'm actually singing sherry in front of frankie valley oh, because they were did, they the were audition. on the audition, yeah, 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 for yeah. The audition mm-hmm. i think for the callback Anyways, it's in the key of C, and then Frankie, just to kind of push me, he says to me, can you take it up a half a step? Wow. Nobody, first of all, nobody sings in the, in the key of C sharp. It's the ugliest key ever. But um, I sang it. I sang Sherry for Frankie Valley, a half a step higher than he recorded it. I get it. I go to La Jolla. But here's the deal. So here I am in a musical where I have like 28 songs. I never leave stage. And the problem is I hadn't actually kept my vocal technique up. Right. So I start to really, really struggle. And now I have to not talk except when I'm on the stage, except when I'm in rehearsal. I have my, my eldest son, Zion, is like six months old at this time. And so now my, my wife and my kid, I'm not talking to them right. because I have to, I have to save my vocal cords. So I go into the show and this is, you know, again, I'm not saved at the time. I start getting addicted to pornography, to sleeping pills. I'm a train wreck. My right. wife doesn't want to be around me because I'm not talking to her, but here I am every night. And when I sing, can't take my eyes off of you, I'm getting standing ovations, but I had never been more miserable in my life. Right. Anyways, I end up with vocal issues. I'm taking prednisone, a steroid, to shrink my cords every night so I can sing. They're sticking a camera down my nose into my throat to check for nodes or calluses on my yeah. cords. We finish the show. They're offering me Broadway. They're offering me sixty grand just to sit around and wait for the Broadway production. I'm back home now in SoCal. But because the show's been so successful on a theatrical run and I'm only making 700 bucks a week, I'm actually running into the red every month. So now I'm in debt, even though I'm in a hit and I need the 60 grand, but we're in negotiations and they wouldn't give me matinees off, which is now traditional and standard for the show. Right now the show has three Frankie Valleys at the ready anytime. And the lead Frankie never does the matinees because it's too grueling vocally. vocally, Well, at the time. They wouldn't allow me. So I have a panic attack. I wake up one night at 3 a.m. And I say to my wife, we're in debt. We're, we're tapping into the equity of our home. And I say to her, I can't do the show. Long story short. Never use click track, nothing. Uh, there were click tracks for like transitions, backing vocals, all but this kind of stuff. For... 
Not really. I mean, there were a couple times where we had to do it because of my vocal yeah, my yeah. vocal issues. And now, by the way, there's I mean, there's click tracks in most Broadway musicals, yeah, but whatever. Yeah. It's a dark little secret. But um, long story short, bro, I pass on it, and literally all heaven breaks loose on me. I mean, I've got one of the four seasons calling me, the director, everybody. I pass up on this show. I get a TV show. So now it's going to Broadway. Jersey Boys is going to, but I'm making more money doing a TV show. Yeah. So I'm thinking I'm the man. The TV show gets canceled. And I absolutely bottom out and collapse. And this is, and then at this point, we're in financial distress. My career's in the toilet. My stepmother, Myra, passes away at 49 from a sudden brain aneurysm. Oh she Lord. falls. She has a brain bleed. She's dead. My, there's a, a series of catastrophes in my family. And I end up, long story short, a year later in a community college studying <laughs> Spanish lit thinking that in my insanity, I'm going to become a psychologist and help other people in need. Right. <laughs> and I meet this guy from Liverpool named Ross Cotto, who invites me to coffee right after I bury my stepmom. He brings me to coffee and I'll never remember the verses, but I remember the feeling when he shared a couple Bible verses with me and it hits me right in the gut. And I thought to myself, wow, that's in the Bible. I need to, I need to look that up. And I end up at this small little charismatic church where it's like a 16-year-old on a guitar. Is that Malibu? Malibu Vineyard? This is in Malibu. Yeah. It was an offshoot of the Malibu yeah. Vineyard. I ended up in this little park in this little community center with this 16-year-old girl named uh, Mary and my friend Johnny playing music that sounds like Joni Mitchell. Now, as a Catholic, I'm like, I'm used to like organs and Latin yeah, or yeah. something and chorus. And she sings and I buckle over. And I begin to weep convulsively and all of the pain that I had been carrying just starts to like pour out of me. And it was in that moment that I encounter Holy Spirit. I don't even know his name. It's the same person who made me leap off that stage into yeah. his destiny. It's the same one that encounters me in this church. And dude, I never look back. I immediately passionately fall in love with the Lord. And my wife calls me because it's a charismatic service. So it's, you know, it's like Bethel. It's like three hours long. She's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. hey, are you alive? <laughs> and I said, I loved it. I just hope you love him as much as I do. We came and we've just never looked back, man. It's his pursuit, his romantic pursuit of us in our mess is a love story. Mm -hmm. Like it's the quintessential love story, isn't it? He He's will so never ever let you go like if you're struggling right now because you know you think there's no way out in your career whatever i just want to let you know that jesus loves you and never ever stops pursuing you and he never will and he's not the person that the world describes when you meet him face to face he is unlike any description you've ever heard man He's so intimate and he knows you so well and he wants all of this stuff that is actually so good for you. Yeah. Um, it's just not what you think it is. It isn't. And I think the reason why he knows to, how to communicate, listen, Jesus communicates with everybody, right? Obviously. But the tenderness with which he communicates to an artist mm. is because he is an artist. Amen that it's like it changes everything because yeah. it's like listen you know you think you're an artist and you're like god has tormented me with this gift he doesn't he no. is an artist himself right. not just creator but artist mm -hmm. so then you get saved i do right then at this point zion's six months mm -hmm. so yeah. you've not had any of the other kids yet 
Oh no no no! By now no. now we've got two kids. Night and Isaiah. Night and Isaiah. Night and Josh, who have the Juvie podcast, which <laughs> yeah. everyone should check out. I've got two kids, and um, one soon to be on a way. I go to New York to Brooklyn. Now I'm saved. Um, I do one more big show with um, uh, Brooke Shields. Yeah, Lipstick Jungle and yep. whatnot. And so I, I think, oh gosh, okay, now I have Jesus. And financial success. Little did I know that the Lord had a different kind of turn in story for me. Wow. So like what brought you, and I know we, we're going to wrap this up yeah. in a bit, but like what what brought you to... To Bethel. To, to Bethel. Bethel. <laughs> to BSSM, to the mountain town. Yeah, man. So, you know, when you say yes to the Lord, it's a yes that that offers you everything and costs you everything at the same time. It's, it's not the story that you think you have, the art that you think had this, you know, self-serving fame and glory. It's like, he's got all good things for you, but it might not yeah. be the story that you had planned in mind. Listen, after 16 years in LA, I, I had peeked behind Oz's curtain. I had done shows. I had done, uh, worked with amazing people, made money, lost money. But here's the thing. Once I encountered him, once I heard Kim Walker talk about this sloppy, wet kiss, I thought, who is that wow. God? Yeah. Because I've, I've met you, I've encountered you, but I don't know you that oh, way. Wow. And so all of a sudden, man, it lit a fire. And this was, you know, it's, it's a longer story, but to get to it, I came here. My midlife crisis wasn't a yeah. Corvette and a ponytail. Yeah. It was Jesus. Yeah. And I came here and I went to be as a Sam. And what I'll never forget, and I think this is maybe a, a good place to, to land this yeah, puppy, yeah. is that puppy. I remember looking up on stage they're in the mosh pit of love at the front of the civic worshiping and I remember looking out on stage and people were manifesting and encountering God in a way that I, I didn't fully understand but I wanted to and I said God why don't I feel you and experience you this way and I looked out on the stage where the worship leaders were and he said something to me that I'll never forget he said you see on the page and the stage what others do not mm. that's how I speak to you and wow. that was the beginning of the love affair of him revealing to me that he knew me not just as a son but as an artist and he began to reform redefine me as an artist and why I was given the gift that I was given. Wow. That's amazing. We're going to continue more with our story and how we met in the next episode. But like, I want to ask you a question in kind of concluding. Mm. I know you consider yourself first and foremost as a storyteller. Yeah. Right. But I want to know what does acting mean to you? Acting for me is it's hard to even put it into words. It goes so deep. It's, it's one of my first loves. Singing is another one. They're very closely tied for me. It helps me. Acting for me is understanding humanity. It helps me love people. Many of the characters that I've played have been broken. Yeah. And it just gives me deep compassion for the frailty and the resiliency yeah. of being a human being. That, for me, acting is the study of humanity. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love to say, somebody asked me the other day, and I was like, as controversial as this could mm -hmm. sound, because Jesus is like- You? Controversy? What? Well, you know, you've got a little bit in there, <laughs> but like acting for me is, it's, it's life. <laughs> like Jesus is my life, of course, that's the given, but it's like, if you were to take that away, it'd be like taking breath away. Yeah, it's one of your lungs. But do you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. So, David, thank you for sharing with it's us, man. It's, it's so exciting for you to hear both of our journeys. And now the next episode where we talk about 
how we both got to know each other in this kind of radical journey of our what love ended, child. Right, the our love child. Of our exactly. Love child. Right. But do you know what I mean? Um, of how this beautiful thing of performing in the presence and performing from, from your identity, not for it, came about. So we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.